0: Welcome back to New Books in Religion, thanks again for joining us, I'm your host Christian Peterson. The worlds of cinema and illustrated fiction are replete with exciting data for the historian of religion. Drawing on tradition, manga, anime, and religion in contemporary Japan by Julian Thomas sets up a robust theoretical model for examining how the concept of religion is deployed in these mediums. Thomas outlines how the category of religion can be understood within the Japanese context and various reasons why religious markers and themes are reproduced in manga and anime culture. His detailed illustration of the typologies of the manga-anime-religion nexus is achieved through both narrative analysis of illustrated fiction and film, as well as ethnographies of digital and material environments. In our conversation, we discuss the production and marketing elements of manga, its uses for proselytization, some ritualized responses of audiences, Famous authors in their works such as Tezuka Asamu's Buddha, religious movements derived from manga and anime culture, the religiously nationalistic elements of Kobayashi Yoshinori's On Yas- Yasakuni and On the Emperor, the filmic career of Miyazaki Hayao, and the role of manga in Om Shinrokyo's Rise and Fall, among many, many other things. Without any further delay, here's our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Religion. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jolien Thomas about his great new book, Drawing on Tradition, Manga, Anime, and Religion in Contemporary Japan. Morning, Jolien.
1: How are you doing? Hi. Hi. How's it going? I'm hey. doing very well, thanks.
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, making some time to, t- to talk to me. Um, this is a really wonderful book. Uh, both really interesting topic. Uh, I, th- I think not many people are working on this kind of stuff in the study of religion. So I really appreciate that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, al- I also really appreciate your, your clarity and your methodology and, and kind of the purpose of the book. And I, I think it's a overall very, very good book. So thank you very uh, well, thank
1: much. Thank you for very much for saying so. <laughs>
0: um, before we get into kind of what, what this book is all about, Um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you got interested in the study of religion, how you got interested in the study of Japanese religions, kind of what what brought you to the field, people that might have been influential in your approach or in the topics you study.
1: Sure. Um, Whenever people ask me this question, I always hesitate for a moment because I'm not sure how far back to go. Um, So... You know, I think I could start by saying, you know, I took classes um, when I was an undergrad in, uh, at Grinnell College. But I, I think that the whole thing that brought me to religious studies classes in the first place was that, you know, I grew up going to a, um, a congregational church, uh, you know, pretty liberal congregation in Des Moines, Iowa. And um, I found myself to be really disenchanted over the course of time with um, with the the church itself. There's this whole interaction uh, that involved my confirmation experience uh, where I didn't want to become a member of the church and my parents and grandparents really did. And I found myself being really disillusioned. And that was the beginning of this sort of angry teenage phase where I was like, ah, down with religion, whatever. <laughs> um, but I realized over the course of time that I actually found uh, religion in the broadest sense to be really fascinating and uh, And, uh, and so I was kind of, uh, I think in my later teenage years, I was really trying to figure out what it is that people think that they're doing, um, when they say they're being religious or, uh, you know, why I, you know, and as I became able to be more reflective, I was wondering why was it that I felt like I didn't really want to become a member of my parents' church? What, what didn't feel right about that to me? Um, so when I, uh, was taking classes at Grinnell. Um, th- some of the first courses that I took that really got me going were, uh, really sparked my intellectual interest happened to be, uh, religious studies courses. Um, I think the first one I took was, uh, a course in major Asian religions taught by, uh, Ed Gilday, day, who's just, um, uh, I think retired, um, at Grinnell. And then I took courses with, um, Henry Reitz, uh, on, on the Bible. Um, somewhere along the way, things just really sparked. And I felt like I finally had this opportunity to engage those questions that had sort of been in the back of my mind uh, when I was younger. Yeah, another thing I noticed was just that in these uh, religious studies courses I was taking, there are a number of people who are just, you know, a year or two ahead of me who seemed to be the most articulate, brilliant people I'd ever met in my life that they were just, you know, out-of-this-world smart, and I thought to myself that I wanted, you know, to be like them. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, declared a religious studies major and, um, I should say that was right around the time where I was undergoing a different <laughs> sort of, uh, non-religious conversion experience where I'd been a very apathetic, uh, student, uh, and nearly got kicked out of school actually. Um, and th- it was kind of thanks to the religious studies courses that I discovered that I actually really liked being uh, a college student. And so, um you know I, I, a number of the professors in the department really worked with me on um uh, how to craft an argument how to uh, write a longer research paper and um soon i found myself being um, deeply engaged um, with the material in every class and uh, by the time i graduated i was um you know i was already sort of thinking about going to grad school um in in religious studies um but uh I wound up taking a detour, um, in that right as I finished college and, um, I did an additional semester of student teaching, uh, I happened to be, uh, you know, dating somebody at the time who was making a move to Japan. And, and I was thinking that I really wanted to leave the country as well. So I just kind of dove right in and, and took a job in Japan. Um, and so my next academic task, if that's the right word, uh, became learning this new language. Um, and so, you know, I spent a couple of years in, in Tokyo, uh, teaching and, um, just trying to learn as much Japanese as I could. And, um, in the course of that, then I kind of inevitably wound up combining my intellectual interests in, uh, my existing intellectual interest in, in religion with, uh, my, Growing interest in Japanese language and culture, uh, and so that's sort of the the germ of this book um, came from that early experience.
0: Yeah, and in the book, you you're somewhat explicit about your experience there and how trying to learn a language uh, kind of collided with this uh, body of uh, literature. Right. So, could you talk right. about how um, I, I guess uh, how this when did you decide that this, this is a, something I should write as a book? How did that, that yeah. emerge?
1: Right. Um, it's really tough to go back and, and retrace this. Cause you know, we're talking about a decade, um, or more now, uh, since this happened, but, um, let's see. So uh, first thing, just to speak briefly about learning Japanese, I had not taken any Japanese before I moved to Japan. Um, so I, I moved there cold and, um, I wasn't taking lessons while I was there either. I was just kind of teaching myself. So I had to um, figure out really efficient ways to, to pick up the language quickly. And um, the urgency came from the fact that i never felt illiterate before. I, um, or I couldn't, I didn't remember the feeling of being illiterate and uh, it really drove me crazy. (laughs) So I felt like I needed to learn how to read the language around me as quickly as possible. And what I started doing was, you know um, comparing romanized spellings with uh, the kanji which is the the ideographic vocabulary that's used in China and then um, the native syllabaries which are called hiragana and katakana and so I was gradually learning how to use these things but to see them in their native context I needed some way um, to have kind of a guide through them and so I ended up picking up um, manga that are um you know pretty popular series that are aimed at children uh and as i started reading those things my vocabulary expanded um very rapidly uh and you know i didn't understand everything at first but um after about a year of reading manga i was able to have a conversation um pretty well and uh and so on but at At the same time, I I couldn't quite let go of this um, interest in religion, particularly because uh, the Japanese approach to what we call religion, I guess I should clarify that um, every time I'm using the word, you can imagine the scare quotes around it or whatever. There's a big deal in the field about like how we define religion and so on. And I, you know, in a minute, I'd like to sort of talk about my approach, but just in terms of what brought me to the book, I was seeing that. you know what i thought of as being religion uh a lot of my japanese interlocutors didn't think of as religion so in the neighborhoods where i was living there were temples and buddhist statues and shinto shrines everywhere you know i couldn't walk around a corner it seemed without running into some religious edifice uh and i would see people um you know making offerings to these statues that were on the roadside, or I would see people um, hiring a Shinto priest to do a groundbreaking ceremony when they were building the house right next door to, uh, on the empty lot next door to my apartment. And so it seemed to me that there was religion everywhere. But when I talked with people, um, most of the time they said that they didn't think of those activities as being particularly religious. Uh, And so that was really the kind of question that was driving my, um, my my research which is basically you know if if we are going to say that there is religion in japan or there's something that we call japanese religion then where is it like what is it that people are doing that we as scholars of religion could describe as being religious um and so that was kind of what i was trying to get at and uh and and I as I was reading more manga or watching more anime, I was finding all of these things that seemed to me to be places where people were regularly engaging in um, religious narrative, sometimes ritually engaging with content, and so that was kind of the thing that was really the motivator for the research project.
0: Great, um, yeah. Yeah. So, could you talk a little bit about where uh, this this category of religion kind of fits in Japan? Because I, I think for many listeners who don't uh, are not familiar with the the Japanese context, um, I think uh, this idea of what is religion in Japan has a, a certain uh, history, right? Where, yeah. Uh, like right. you say, most people say they're not religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking to people about the things that you see religious, they're saying they're not. So. Um, how, how can we think about religion in Japan? What, what exactly are you talking about?
1: Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that question. So um, as in many places in the world, I think that it is fair to say that um, there, let's see, there had always been a certain way of dividing the social life in Japan. Um, if we go back to the early historical sources, we can see that um special consideration is given to people who engage in certain types of ritual activity. A lot of times that's associated with politics or with governance. Um, but we do see like sort of special treatment granted to Buddhist priests, for example. Um, if you want to say that like having this special class of person, uh, who engages in a certain type of ritual activity or ritual services, religion, then I think we could go back and say, yeah, religion, like Japanese people have had a concept of religion or of a certain special path for quite some time. But is that equivalent with the modern concept of religion? I, and uh, I, and I think many of my colleagues in Japanese studies would say, no, it's, it's not. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a difference of opinion in the field about whether it's better to just abandon the term, the term entirely or only use it for the modern period or, um, whatever. Uh, I, I I tend to think that um, religion happens to be one of the best terms we have at our disposal to to describe this stuff. And and so um, I don't particularly have a problem using the term religion as long as we're careful to define how we mean by it. Since I'm a modernist, uh, it's particularly easy for me because um, I tend to... Uh, talk and write about Japan after the, say, like in the 19th century and later. Uh, And at that point, Japanese people are interacting with Europeans who have introduced the category of religion in its modern sense. And Japanese people are actually contributing to the creation of that category, uh, expanding its usage um, for Europeans. Uh, So without, without getting into too much detail, I, th- I think that we can say that from, say, the mid-19th century, there is this sense that religion is something, is a distinct or discrete aspect of social life. And um, the the meaning that it has in Japanese, the word shukyo that it has is, it sort of changes over the decades. But um, from the from the mid to especially late 19th century, you have this idea that there's this discrete thing that exists. The problem that arises is that um, very few people think of what they do as being religious. So um, if you today were to ask ten people on the street in Japan, um, are you religious or do you engage in religious activity? nine of the ten almost certainly would say, No, I don't I'm not religious, I don't do that thing. Um, but if you were to ask them about a specific activity, like, um, did you, uh, go to clean your ancestors' graves, um, during the, uh, equinox week or during Obon, it actually happens to be, um, Obon season right now. It's kind of a, uh, time when people tend to venerate their ancestors, uh, then a lot of people would answer yes to that. So people are engaging in ritual activity that's based on this sort of presupposition that the ancestors exist and need to be taken care of, uh, which to me sounds like religion, but um, to you know Native informants, they, they don't categorize it that way. Um, so then the dilemma that remains is, as a scholar of religion, what do you do? Um, with that information. Do you use the term religion to describe it, or do you try and use some sort of native way of describing it? Native sounds weird, but a local way of of describing that. Um, I can't say that I have f- settled on my final approach to this, but in, in the book, I was trying to say, okay, let's be honest about this. I'm a scholar of religion who's predisposed by his training to Um, see religion in aspects of social life. So let me just assume that, and let me be explicit about that and say, I'm going to call these things religious, even though I'm acknowledging that some of my informants aren't going to be um, choosing to describe it that way. Uh, And, you know, I I think some people would take issue with that, but at the time it seemed to me to be a reasonable uh, approach to the dilemma about whether religion exists or doesn't exist in Japan.
0: Sure. I think I think you're successful in the book too in uh talking about ways of thinking about religious narratives, uh social rights, these kind of things and uh I think it makes sense in the context that you're working with. Now that that content uh, many people also might not be familiar with. So can you, can you sure. give us a little bit of idea of what is manga, what is anime, what distinguishes these from other illustrated fiction uh mm-hmm. that that people might be familiar with?
1: Right. So simplest version would be that manga are like comics and anime are cartoons. Um, it gets a little more complicated because I think when people hear the word comics, they might be thinking of like a comic strip that they see in the newspaper uh, here in the United States where, you know, you have three or four panels or maybe one panel in the case of the family circus. Uh, but you know, the, uh, manga, can exist in that sort of form. But usually when people use the term manga now in the 21st century, they're referring to, um, what I, what I tend to describe as illustrated serial novels. Um, in other words, they're, um, these, uh, Long, usually pretty long stories that would be um, initially published in weekly or monthly magazines um, at, in installments of about 15 or 20 pages, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and then eventually those stories are um, collected into volumes of about 200 pages a piece. Uh, and those volumes, uh, a set of those volumes, can run into the hundreds. There are some. Um, very famous manga series and very popular manga series that, um, would have just had ongoing serial serializations. Um, more it's, I think it's a lot more common to have a manga story run somewhere between say five and 20 volumes. Um, so, you know, roughly a thousand pages, maybe several thousand pages for a story. Um, and then in terms of the, the medium itself, uh, Every type of comics, if we use comics as the broad descriptor of um, uh, storytelling, of sequential art, every type of comics will have some decision-making on the part of the author, illustrator, in terms of how to represent the passage of time, how to represent changes in um, scene from one place to the other. And manga tend to have a pretty broad range of how to represent that. And, And another way of thinking about that is, um, what happens in the space between each individual frame of the story? Uh, so, manga artists uh, might uh, do a lot of close up shots of um, various things that are happening at the same moment in time, uh, or they might show several things that are happening in different places um, simultaneously. Uh, and this is something that they actually, it seems likely that they borrowed from cinema uh, and from the ability of. Uh, director to take a shot and juxtapose it immediately with another shot uh and create this sense of motion and um or of two things happening simultaneously. Um, so that's manga. Um, I should say too that manga in Japan they're read um right to left Uh, so books open the opposite way than they do here and top to bottom. So you would be reading from the top right of a page across that page, then down to the bottom, right, um, across and so on. Um, now let's see anime are really just, um, they're cartoons, but they tend to have a stylistic difference from American cartoons in that, uh, a lot of times the the camera will linger on a shot, um, longer than is common in uh in you know Saturday morning cartoons um or a camera might um or or there might be very rapid um cutting between from one scene to another uh to create to exaggerate that sense of, of movement um but you know uh, anime directors borrowed a lot of the apparatus and um the sort of techniques for creating anime, uh, from, um, studios like the Disney studio and so on. Um, but then they kind of added their own twist to it. And a lot of that had to do with sort of, um, economic pressures on the industry and so on. And other people have written about this in much more detail, um, than, than I have. I think a great book for, uh, for anime uh, is the anime machine by Thomas Lamar. Uh, I think it's university of Minnesota press. Um, he goes into great detail in the first hundred pages or so about, um, the ways that filming anime, um, creates this unique medium and and so on. Um, so there's, there's good stuff out there for people who are interested in that. And a lot of it is cited in my book.
0: Sure. And who are the audiences for these? You, you, in the book, you talk about the relationship between manga and anime. Um, and you talk about the, the types of audiences. So sure, who, yeah. who does this stuff? Because I think in a, at least in America, when we think of comics, when we think of cartoons, we think of kids.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, kids certainly read manga and watch anime, but uh, in in Japan and now increasingly outside of Japan, um, we see a much broader range. Uh, if you're on a Tokyo train, you could see a 60 year old salary man reading a manga Um, you could also see a grandmother or a, uh, you know, 20 something so-called office lady reading a manga. Um, and, and the, the subject matter is just as varied as those demographics. Uh, so you'll have, uh, everything from science fiction and fantasy, which is a lot of what we see, um, getting translated into, uh, the United, into English, um, for, audiences in the United States and elsewhere. Um, but, you know, there are how to manuals, um, or, or, or kind of, uh, yeah, it, it, these sort of nonfiction fiction dis- introductions. Like the, we, it's sort of similar to like the idiot's guide to whatever. Um, you'll have those in manga form and in, in Japan, you also have, um, you know, there's, I think for a while people tended to associate manga with um eroticism because there is a a certain corner of the market that is targeted to um you know the you know I guess helping people get their jollies but um <laughs> you know the the uh yeah that sort of thing that's um you know does exist it's a share of the market that I don't think we can ignore but it is by no means the majority of the market. Um, and, uh, I think basically any topic that you can imagine, um, being covered in a novel, um, in English literature is definitely covered in, in manga. Um, you know, so you have your 50 shades of gray and you have your hunger games and you have everything else, including like the most, uh, profound pieces of literature and the most banal sort of Jejun pieces of literature side-by-side side when you're thinking about manga.
0: Now, um, you're, you're very clear about kind of, uh, your methodology, how you think we should be approaching these types of materials. Um, I wonder if you could just give us your thoughts a little bit about, um, this idea of the medium. Um, Mm-hmm. How, how can we approach sources where images or film or sound are so important mm-hmm. to structuring the, the narrative of the text?
1: Right. Okay, so um, a big thing, and, and interestingly to me, this is true both of religious studies and of manga and anime studies, is that there is a tendency to overemphasize narrative and to downplay the other things that are contributing to the sort of synesthetic experience of whatever, you know? So, um, when you see, uh, and this, I, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about people who are doing manga and anime studies or religious studies, but just that scholars are now aware of the fact that we, we used to, just say, this is what the story says without looking at how the story was being conveyed. Um, and so in the case of manga and anime, that meant, well, you know, I've got this work by Tezuka Osamu. What does, what's the story he tells without looking at how he tells the story. Um, in, in his case, like he's got a a famous uh, biography of the Buddha that some people have been using in their classrooms and so on. And, Tezuka is telling the story by, uh, modernizing it, making these, uh, asides, um, that sort of bring, you know, fifth s- or sixth century BCE, India slash Nepal, uh, to the it, it sort of, upda- it sort of, he sort of updates it for people who might be reading in um, Japan in the 1970s or 80s, um, with little references and a size to contemporary culture. Um, and also importantly, uh, and, and those are visual references. I, 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 should be clear as well as verbal references. Um, so, so there's that, but then there's also things I, I alluded to this a little bit before about just the pacing of the, of the story and how the artist might move from one frame of a manga to the next. Um, does if the artist focuses a lot on different aspects of the same scene in individual panels that have say a picture of flowers or a picture of a person's fingers interlaced or whatever are is the author inviting the reader to take time to, to take a moment uh, to appreciate all of the different aspects of what's going on there Um if the author chooses to just use image to um, portray a particularly profound moment, is that supposed to suggest that the moment that the content of that moment is ineffable? Um, For example, in, I I just referred to Tezuka's um, Buddha. So just to, uh, to piggyback on that a little bit um, when Tezuka is uh, portraying the Buddha, having his enlightenment experience, He um, does not offer an articulation that's verbal. You know, we tend to teach students about the four noble truths and stuff like that. Rather, he uh, just draws a picture of the Buddha seeing himself as interconnected with all these other dancing flowers and bears and, and, you know, artichokes and octopi and stuff like that. So uh, he's portraying this sense that everything is interconnected, um, which, you know, it, we could say is maybe part of the Buddha's, um, enlightenment experience, but he's in doing so, he's changing the very way that people might understand the content of that experience. Um, and he's, I, I say he's changing only in the sense that he's presenting it in a way that's different from the usual kind of verbal articulations that we would read in a, a textbook on Buddhism. Um, Yeah. So, so paying attention to those, those visual cues and visual methods is, is really important. Um, and I think that that's important particularly because, you know, in the field of religious studies, uh, we're increasingly aware of the fact that religion is not just about, um, assent to propositional statements of belief, nor is it about people just, um, believing in a story, you know, the story of, you know, um, you know, a certain people being an elect people or uh, a certain person being a messiah, uh, it, that it can be about all of these other things, um, that have to do with, you know, the material body and so on. Um, one person that has been doing interesting work on this recently is Brent plate. Um, somebody that I've been in dialogue with a lot about media and religion and, and so on, and kind of how there are all these ways that we engage with religious content um, that come through our various senses uh, that don't have to do with just reading a story and following along. So I think that's what I was trying to get at when, in, in the book. Um, Brent's been, done a, done great work um, both on the senses and on film and religion that I highly recommend as well. But yeah.
0: Yeah, and we've talked to Brent here at New Books and Religion as well. So we, we are uh, also a big fan of his work. Now, your narrative reading of these stories is great. But the other thing that's really interesting about your book is you you pair this narrative approach with an ethnographic approach. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the type of ethnographic work you were doing. What kind of things were you thinking about, uh, around manga and anime, I guess.
1: Yeah. Um, so I have to be, uh, you know, this is a, this is a tricky thing for me because I, I think of the ethnography, um, the ethnographic aspect of, of this book as being its greatest strength and its greatest weakness. Um, you know, the, the way I, I, I had gotten midway through my research in Japan and I, and I realized that I had just been reading all these stories or watching all these films, but I didn't, I wasn't feeling like I was getting closer to understanding what was truly religious about them. And I I was sensing that I was just imposing my category of religion on these texts or these films. I I hesitate to call them texts, but on these manga and anime. Um, And basically what I was doing, if I was doing that, was just writing a book. It wasn't a book yet, but just writing a study about myself. Um, And I wanted to rather be writing a study about, you know, people in contemporary Japan and how they were interacting with, with manga and anime um, and what might be religious about that. So very late in the game, it occurred to me to start asking people and I say very late in the game because like I said, I'd I'd gotten pretty far along um, and I'd written some stuff and then, you know, I started wanting to substantiate my claims. Um, And my first way of doing that was to go to fan message boards dedicated to certain works. And, um, I was just lurked on the boards and saw what people were posting and noticed that it was not uncommon that, you know, that I wasn't alone in seeing religion in some of these things, but also that it wasn't uncommon for people to describe in the relatively safe, anonymous space of an online message board that, you know, they actually engaged in some sort of ritual behavior. What I saw as ritual behavior. I'm not sure if they always use that word. Uh, Um, you know, with the, the media in question. Um, so then once I started seeing that with the online message boards, then I started, you know, I started following up when I would meet people, um, you know, a friend of a friend or something. And I, they asked me about my work. Um, then I would kind of say, okay, well, would you, would you be okay with me just asking you some questions? You know, so we'd meet at a cafe, I'd click on my tape recorder and we'd have a chat about, um, you know, what what their experience w- was with manga and anime, what their thoughts were about religion, and if the two were connected at all. And, you know, I, I have to say, I called it a strength because I hadn't seen anybody really doing that sort of work before, but it was a weakness in that I, got, I came to it too late, and the the interviews and, and the survey I did with um, some college students, uh, it, it really was too little too late. And, um, and so one of the things that I, that I did at the closing of the book was to say, you know, this is just a first attempt. I really hope that people will take this idea and move forward with it. Um, we're already starting to see more books, uh, being published on manga and anime that are, um, using ethnography to get at like what, what the industrial trends are and so on. But I would love to see, uh, another book, a better book, um, come out that's, uh, been done with, um, you know, detailed interviews with uh, both producers and consumers of manga and anime. I think it would be fantastic. Uh, so uh, if there are any, you know, grad students out there who are looking for a project to do, then, um, you know, they could, <laughs> it can be done much better than, than what I did in, in this particular
0: book. Um, well, you we, we think you did great. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Now, um, a- another thing uh, to help us think about, this idea of religion within the the context of manga and anime is you outline certain typologies uh, mm. or, or categories of mm-hmm. where uh, religion fits in here. So, can you tell us the the, the ways in which manga is deployed in, uh, or excuse me, the ways in which religion is deployed in manga?
1: Yeah actually I don't think you misspoke there manga is deployed by uh <laughs> religious groups um to try and reach new audiences um I say new audiences because I, I think there's this this sense in the case of not all of them but um you know there've been some uh, manga that have been published by say you know uh the soto sect of of um which is a branch of of the Zen tradition in in Japan. And they'll have like the, the story of their founder Dogen. And it's, as you might expect, a sort of, um, plodding biography of this sectarian founder. Uh, but then you see some other groups that, uh, are doing things where they're trying to tell an, an exciting adventure story and present the group's doctrine at the same time. Um, one of the groups that's been doing that, uh, to, with a lot of um, verve, I'm not sure about the effectiveness of it, is a group that's um, called Kofuku no Kagaku in Japanese. Uh, they now go by the name Happy Science in English. Uh, they used to be called the Institute for Research in Human Happiness. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, they have these uh, marvelously produced uh, anime uh, and manga that they have been publishing for some time now uh, that are you know, designed to introduce people to sort of the cosmology and worldview of happy science and, um, to get people interested. Uh, so that's one kind of thing. But then I, I think like if we were to think about this as a continuum or a range of types of expression with religion, then we have these things on one end of the continuum where a religious group is creating a manga or anime specifically to edify their current members or to capture new audiences on the other end of the Continuum would be I, I, I think the the vast majority of stuff that we might call religious manga and anime which is um, the kind of thing where an author uh, or illustrator or director recognizes that religion is a particularly fecund source of all kinds of great great stuff it's the source of magic and miracles and and so on um, which means that religion is you know, religious content is replete with convenient plot devices. So, you know, you have the girl who is, a um, who, whose family runs a Shinto, uh, shrine in Tokyo and she falls down a well and then she's transported to this magical world. Or, um, you have the person who, uh, suddenly discovers that this Buddhist, uh, statue is walking and talking and offering to protect her from these bad guys. Uh, And so the religion that's involved is kind of aesthetic, you know, it's ornamental in a way in that it just moves the plot device along. But it it incidentally exposes people to religious vocabulary, imagery and ideas. Um, And there's there's some stuff in the middle where people are, you know, kind of trying to get um, to get audiences to maybe pay a little bit more attention to Uh, religion or to lead a more examined life without necessarily saying you must convert to this particular religion. Um, One person who's fairly famous, who I think has been doing that is uh, 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 a fairly right-wing guy named uh, Kobayashi Yoshinori. Uh, Several of his books um, have sort of, taken on this hortatory mode where they're encouraging people to visit the controversial, controversial, uh, Yasukuni shrine in, in central Tokyo, or, um, to think of the emperor as a ritual specialist rather than just as a, a sort of political or symbolic figurehead. Um, so, you know, there, there's a pretty broad range in terms of, um, the religion in and of manga and anime. But one, one crucial thing is that I think, to date, you know, when I was working on this book, I felt like most of the stuff there wasn't a lot on on religion and manga and anime. But what what was out there tended to assume tended to use the preposition in, like let's look at this manga and find the religion in it. Um, and what I was trying to do was to sort of flip that around and to say, okay, we have um, l- let's assume that there's religion here, but let's not assume that the religion is being transmitted through the medium, let's rather think about the fact that the medium might be the site for the performance of religious activity. And again, this is where ethnography came in. And that's where I was starting to find people, you know, reading a manga and um, incorporating that into their religious worldviews or engaging in ritual behavior that was um, based on what they had seen in an anime and, and stuff like that. So.
0: Great. And uh, speaking of kind of audience reactions and, you know, uh, this as a site of where religion might be performed, there's one figure, uh, uh, Kuroda Minoru. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, who this figure is and what's going on around him?
1: Yeah. um, Kuroda Uh, is a really fascinating individual and he was very generous uh, with his time. Uh, He uh, met with me a few times and and we talked about um, his sort of life and work and I guess what he would call his life's work, um, which is uh, that he, let's see, he sort of fell into this career as a manga artist um, and was basically just one of those, people kind of in the, in the middle of this vast manga industry in the uh, late 60s and 70s, uh, where he was kind of drawing manga targeted to girls um, as a way, as he describes it, of just having a way to eat, right? Um, but along the way, he became a member of uh, a, a religious group called Mahikari, Um, which means true light. Uh, It's a fairly large religious organization in in Japan. And um, that really began to influence the material that he was incorporating into his manga. Now, he says that he was already drawing manga that caused some religious groups to contact him and to say, hey, you should come check out our teachings because they align with yours or whatever. Um, For whatever reason, Mahikari, he clicked with Mahikari. And then there's sort of this... Um, uh, schism in the late 70s, and he was kind of at a loss and felt had a moment of inspiration when he realized that it it would be important for him to start his own group. Uh, It's a small group. It's kind of based on... uh, The group was formally established in the early 80s, I think 1984, technically, but perhaps a couple of years before that. Um, Anyway, so he establishes this religious group that's largely based on his... um, You know, his readership and, um, his manga are, um, how, how do I describe this? They tend to present protagonists as, you know, a protagonist will discover that she's died or that she's traveling through the world of the dead and then some figure will appear to guide her along. And so that figure is really kind of the stand-in for Kuroda himself. And he's allowed, and, and it gives him the opportunity to sort of expound on his views about the spirit world and so on. Um, and so he's published uh, quite a few manga that way. And then he started publishing um, ordinary nonfiction where he would present this, uh, his increasingly complex worldview, which is largely derived from Mahikari cosmology, uh, to this audience of interested readers. Uh, he's got a website that sells various things and then his group will have, uh, various sort of spiritual goods they're called. And then, it, and then his group will have these periodic meetings, um, where they engage in this, uh, practice of, uh, transmitting, uh, sort of invisible flame from their hands, um, which has therapeutic purpose, uh, effects and, and so on. Um, Kuroda was, a, a, I have to admit a bit evasive about, uh, the connection between what he does and religion. Although his group is officially registered as a religion with the Japanese government. Um, he really doesn't like that term. Uh, he thinks that religion is outdated and he prefers to think about, um, the near future where the term religion won't even be necessary because it's an artificial distinction that people make. Um, so I think it's important to, to recognize that he doesn't, he rejects the term religion except when he's you know, registering his group with the government and, and he, <laughs> and, and then he, he says that that's the, um, the best thing, uh, that's sort of the best description in, in that sense. But, um, Yeah. So he's a, he's a really fascinating figure and I I think rare, I don't, I don't want to give the impression. And my intention in the book was not to give the impression that, um, there are lots of manga artists out there who are founding their own religions, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon, I think, for people who already have a following to, um, see the nature of that following change or to adopt the stance of a teacher. Uh, and, and Kuroda has definitely done that.
0: Hmm. Um, now, um, another chapter you focus on film and you specifically mm-hmm. focus on uh, Miyazaki Hayao, mm-hmm. um, who lots of people might know of, he's very famous. Uh, can you, can you tell us a little bit about who this figure is? Uh, some of his more well-known Films, and part of what you think you're doing in this chapter is critiquing how he's been approached and kind of mm-hmm. assessed. So mm-hmm. maybe, uh, maybe before you kind of give us your perspective, you could tell us how would most people think of of him?
1: Right. Okay. So Miyazaki is famous uh, in outside of Japan for uh, films like Princess Mononoke and uh, Spirited Away. And I think spirited Away uh, won an academy Award um, in two thousand four uh, so you know this this is a a really well known film um, you know his films often feature young female protagonists who have some sort of um, coming of age experience, I guess in Princess Mononoke, you could say it's both a a male and female, and maybe the story is more of the male protagonist, but, but at any rate, you, his protagonists are almost always young. Uh, they're almost always transported either magically or mechanically to another world or to a, um, or outside of their home. Uh, and then you know they come to have this new um, sort of appreciation for uh, what the world is like, or some, or something like that. I'm I'm speaking very broadly about his work here. Um, obviously, there are variations in his stories. Um, the reception of Miyazaki's work uh, when it comes to religion has been, I think, a problematic um, sort of. A tendency to see that he is deploying certain types of figures and to assume that he has a religious message to transmit or to assume that he unconsciously is transmitting a religious message. So you'll see these people who are saying, you know, Miyazaki is preserving this ancient form of Shinto um, that's triply problematic because <laughs> we... <laughs> Uh, one, he doesn't, he explicitly denies that that's what he's doing Two, uh, it's questionable whether we have a really good sense of what the ancient form of Shinto is. And it's especially questionable whether Miyazaki has any sense of what that is. Um, and three, you know, what, what's at stake for us when we're saying that he's transmitting this, this thing. And, and it's the third thing that really really gets to me because I feel like there's this sort of preservationist or conservationist impulse that a lot of um, scholars of religion have or people who happen to be making reference to religion when they're writing about uh, media or popular entertainment where they see, (coughs) excuse me, they see this um, media form and they say, oh, well, uh, this media form is existing in a to use another problematic word, secular environment. And maybe it is allowing religion to survive in an in an environment that's increasingly hostile to religion. And I completely understand where that comes from. I'm sympathetic to it, but I really don't think it's that helpful because um, it seems to me more likely that the environment is not necessarily hostile to religion, the environment is changing and the forms that religion is changing or the forms that religion is taking is changing as well and and are changing as well. So, um, to say that Miyazaki is preserving something, one attributes to Miyazaki an attitude that he explicitly denies having. And two, um, kind of focuses our attention on the position of religion in society in a way that I think is ultimately, unhelpful um, I do share with these uh, with the authors who have written about Miyazaki in this way a sense that there is something in his works that we can identify as being religious um, but I think that we shouldn't assume that he is doing anything to necessarily preserve awareness of, of deities or, or anything like that in fact the deities who appear in Miyazaki's films seem to be ones that he is sort of made up or taking great liberties with. Um, and they're the ones who are active, but almost always his representations of institutional religion are pessimistic. Uh, in princess Mononoke, there's a venal monk um, who is certainly not uh, a figure to be admired. Um, in, uh, In My Neighbor Totoro, um, there's no priest figure who appears, but there are statues um, that appear, and they tend to be inert, whereas you have this um, fuzzy tree spirit that the two um, young girls who are the protagonists of the film interact with. And so, you know, I think that to say that Miyazaki is doing religion um, kind of takes us away, without defining carefully what we mean by that, Kind of takes us away from um, an understanding of what his what his work might actually be doing, especially if he says explicitly time and again you know i 'm not into um, organized religion or institutional religion so uh, that 's kind of what I was trying to to do uh, in that in that chapter and I should say too that um, the book kind of that 's the core of the book, and that is the thing that I wrote first, and so um, the rest of the book kind of built out around that. So uh, some of the stuff that's in the introduction where I'm laying out my methodology is really based on my reactions to Miyazaki's films and to the reception of Miyazaki's films.
0: Now the final chapter, uh, revolves around this group, Om Shinrikyo, um, which a lot of people probably don't know about, I would assume, Mm, but, um, mm -hmm. If, if you know people that work on new religious movements, things like that might be more familiar with this. Yes, but uh, you you talk about uh, how manga is employed to formulate a kind of identity and ideology for the group, but also mm. how it's used to proselytize and then and then ultimately how it's used to critique this group um, and some of its activities. So, uh, re- really interesting. I, 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 really like this as a case study. Um, so could you tell us what this group is and then where does manga f- fit into this, this group's kind of activities?
1: Right. Okay. So, um, first of all, Om was, uh, um, the group that was responsible for a string of violent acts in the mid nineties, uh, most famously, uh, members of the group spread uh, sarin gas, which is a neurotoxin that's um, deadly on several trains that were converging on Kasumigaseki station in central Tokyo uh, in March, 1995. Um, This horrific incident really shocked um, Japan, uh, which is still to this day, one of the safest places I've ever, ever been. It's it's shockingly safe. Um, So you can imagine in a place that is so safe uh, having this um, this atrocious act committed was really a wake-up call to people. Um, so uh, one of the quick reactions that appeared in the media right after um, Ohm's sort of nefarious activities came to light uh, was to attribute the violence to the influence of manga and anime. And there was some fodder for this idea in that um the leader and founder of Omshinikyo Asahara Shoko um was uh known to have given sermons um that were drawing on um Manga and anime, like one of the one that immediately comes to mind is this, uh, anime from the mid to late seventies called space battleship, space battleship Yamato. Um, so Asahara is kind of using that as a way of, um, providing his own teachings, which are sort of this amalgamation of esoteric Buddhism and yoga and, um, he started incorporating kind of this uh, idea about the end times in a biblical sense, and and, and so on. So he's got this pastiche of i of religious ideas that he's building that he had built by the mid '90s. That happened to draw upon the source material of some popular culture. So then journalists and some scholars of religion picked up on that, and they and they attributed the violence to. Um, you know Asahara is the evil mastermind, but then also to him taking advantage of the uh, his his followers' commitment to these fictional worlds, um, and and I think that that's uh, there's some truth in that, but I think that that um, sort of oversimplifies what was going on, which is a very complicated uh, religious worldview. And when we see these cases of religious groups engaging in violent behavior. Um, I, I think it's really important to not engage in reductive analyses that say that it only comes from this particular doctrine or it only comes from that particular influence anyway. So, um, the relationship between OM and, and manga continued in that OM, um, like several other religious groups of the time, uh, was also producing manga and anime as a way of, um, attracting new followers. And they, um in the early nineties, late 80s, early 90s, they were you know on college campuses, they were trying to get new people to join the group. And they and um they sort of hit a niche market in that they were they were very ascetic. And so people who really wanted to engage in ascetic behavior um I think were attracted to the group. But anyway, uh what what I wanted to do in the in this last chapter um and then in a, a follow-up article uh that came out the same year as the book is to kind of engage with manga artists reactions to Ohm and to see how they were, um, how they were using the manga medium to, kind of put Om back in its place or to uh, renegotiate the relationship between religion and violence or to renegotiate the relationship between religion and, and, you know, ordinary society. Uh, and so I tried to find a few different examples of manga artists doing that in different ways, you know, like the um, evil cult leader mastermind, again, cult in scare quotes, but you know, this um, evil leader who is, you know, Uh, raping people and killing people and stuff like that is is one model that comes up in the chapter. But then there are other models that um, like uh, in Urasawa Naoki's 20th century boys, where it's much more ambiguous about who's at fault for the um, behavior, you know, whereas on the one hand you might have the authors of this uh, manga charisma that are saying it's the evil mastermind in the case of Urasawa's story Um, over the course of the story, it becomes increasingly unclear who is responsible for the terrible things that have happened. And, you know, in many cases, Urasawa's finger seems to change. You know, is he pointing to the evil mastermind? Is he pointing to himself as the author, um, to the main protagonist, to the reader? Uh, And I think that uh, he is being intentionally ambiguous and, and a bit provocative in, in terms of trying to highlight the fact that groups like ohm don't just come out of nowhere. Um, they're fostered by the society around them. Uh, so that's kind of what I was, what I was up to in, in that uh, particular chapter.
0: Great. Is there anything else about the book that you want to talk about that we didn't get to address?
1: Hmm. Um, well, you know, I guess the only thing, uh, that I, I want to reiterate is that, um, this is in my mind, very much a, a first attempt. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a book that is, um, immature decidedly. Uh, it was, it was based on a master's thesis rather than a doctoral dissertation. So it's, um, it's got a, uh, there's a lot more that can be done with a gr- with a more sophisticated, kind of methodological approach that is more consistently engaged throughout the book. And I think that the program that I lay out in the introduction is one that I'm more or less happy with, but I'm not sure that I followed through um, as much as I would like, to, would have liked to in, in the later chapters. So um, I guess what I would add is just that um, there is so much more work to be done on this, on this topic my current research is taking me in a completely different direction. So I, I really hope that other people, um, pick up on it and, and, and do stuff with manga and anime. And the other thing I mentioned very briefly in the conclusion is video games. Um, I think there's a lot to be done on religion and video games. Some people have been doing things with that in, um, in the American context, but you know, there's, uh, a whole different way of interacting with a story when, when you can control it to a certain degree. So, um, that's the kind of research I'd love to see other people do in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you set out a, a, a very good model for how to approach materials like this throughout the book. So I think it's a, it's a great success. Oh, thank um, you for saying so. Yeah. Now what, what kind of things, uh, are you working on now? Where has your research gone?
1: Yeah. So, um, as, as I was indicating earlier, this sort of driving question behind the manga book, uh, behind drawing on tradition is this question about how we can responsibly define the category of religion in the context of contemporary Japan. And I would say that my abiding sort of research question continues to be about that sort of thing. You know, how can we responsibly define religion? But, um, I've moved from kind of doing this contemporary study that's drawing on a lot of um you know contemporary sociology and so on to a much more historical focus so my current project uh is looking at um the politics of religious freedom mostly in 20th century japan and the project is sort of divided into two parts the part one looks at the um the politics of religious freedom during the time that Japan's first modern constitution was in effect from 1890 to 1947. And whereas we've often been told that Japan had religious freedom on the books, but that in actuality, the government denied religious freedom to Japanese citizens. I'm showing that the situation is much more complicated in that you have all these competing interest groups that are defining religion in different ways. They're defining freedom, liberty and rights in different ways. And that affects um, how they are sort of advocating for or asking for greater religious freedom or interpreting the constitution or engaging in legislation that expands or contracts religions' uh, rights. So that's kind of the first half of the project, which is crucial groundwork for the second half of the project, which looks at a much shorter time period which is the allied occupation of Japan at the end of uh, the second world war. And in that part of the project, I'm, I'm looking at how, um, uh, you know, the American project of spreading freedom to other parts of the globe operates and, and a sort of early instance of that. Um, but I'm also looking at how religious freedom starts to be constructed as a universal human right in a in a real sense. So we have this idea of <clears throat> excuse me I think I've run to the end of my <laughs> vocal cords for a, for a couple of centuries before 1945 we have this idea of religious freedom as a human right but it it exists in pretty rarefied contexts and and it's not clear what a human right is um in 1945 and in or in the course of World War II and especially at the conclusion of the war, people are suddenly responsible for defining what is a human right? What do we mean when we say that? And it turns out that in Japan, there was a lot of pressure to do that very quickly because of all these sort of policy decisions that had to be made about how to instantiate religious freedom and why the Japanese version was bad and why the American version was good and so on. So it is to me this fascinating case study about how, um, the meaning of religious freedom changes about how military intervention and military occupation lead to, uh, these points of, uh, contestation over definitions of religion and freedom. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about where the project's uh, going to go. So, um, I'm going to be working on that book, uh, this uh, next couple of years.
0: Great. Well, good luck with that. And we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this, this great book that you've already written. So thanks. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to new books in religion. That was my conversation with Jolien Thomas about his great book, drawing on tradition, manga, anime, and religion in contemporary Japan, which was published with the university of Hawaii press in 2012.